Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to our podcast, Life After the Letters. I'm Amelie. And I'm Suba. We're friends that met whilst working our first shifts as junior doctors. And we're here to talk about the stories and challenges that we face every day. This week, I'm joined by a guest who probably doesn't even realise that she was instrumental in the creation of the second season where we interview doctors, Dr. Jacintha Kira. We met through the conventional method of sliding into the DMs, and today is our first time meeting in real life. Jacintha kindly messaged Subra and I during our first season and shared her experiences of her FY1 year, where she suffered the losses of two close family members. Jacintha is an anaesthetic trainee and is passionate about making the conversations around organ donation, death and grief less taboo. Hello, Jacintha. Oh, hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm trying to get the sexy super voice, but it's not really happening. I've literally been trying since March and yeah. it's so sad. Well, I'm glad that someone else has a really high yeah. voice as well, <laughs> so we can bounce off each other. I feel like we're going to have to like set the tone of this conversation like lower somehow. So, Jacintha, thank you so much for coming here today. That's okay. That's all right. Thank you so much for that introduction. That no. is really embarrassing. But <laughs> no, I think um, you've managed to sum up what I feel really well. So thank you. Good, good. So it's actually quite funny because, so as I said, um, when I met Jacinta this morning, because I haven't met her in real life, I thought I knew what she looked like. And I was quite sure of it. I was like, okay, look, I'm looking for this like cute, popping little brown doctor. <laughs> I was like, she's going to be dressed well. She's going to be dressed in gym gear because she like goes to the gym all the time on her Instagram. And then like, so I walk up to the, to grab my coffee this morning. And then there's this girl, she's Asian-ish. To be honest, she doesn't even look Asian when I look back at her now. And I was like, hey, Jacintha. And this woman <laughs> just gave me the weirdest look. <laughs> I bet she was like a little Chinese lady, wasn't she? <laughs> Thanks, Amelie. <laughs> <laughs> like I got the wrong side. I know. Of so yeah, then Jacinta texted me. She was like, I'm getting coffee. And I was like, no, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I don't said, worry, don't worry. So nice to meet you properly. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I feel like I know you. It's, it's really weird. Probably because we've been talking for yeah, the past true, half an hour. And, yeah. So Jacinta, we're here to talk about yeah. death. Mm. And you're teaching me to speak clearer about the words death rather using lost, lost and passed away a little bit more. Mm. So do you mind just starting with telling me why you messaged us in the first place and then we'll take it from there? Yeah, sure. Um, so unfortunately, I experienced um, death when I was an F1 and an F2. So within an 11 month period, my brother-in-law, um, Tej, was in a really 
severe like freak car accident mm. where he ended up having a six month intensive care stay and 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 that was just when I qualified as a mm. doctor so dealing with that was really difficult no of course and then you know when I thought I was kind of over that um my dad then died suddenly just out of the blue and it's something that I feel our personal losses and mm. our personal bereavements they aren't spoken about Mm-mm. I felt a bit embarrassed and a bit ashamed um and it's something that if I can just share my story and share that it's okay to not be okay yeah um then hopefully you know if, if one person can relate to this and know that if I've survived it then mm-hmm. hopefully they can yeah um then that would be a really good thing mm-hmm. it was like you know when you came came in today and you said that oh you're not quite sure why you're here to talk today but actually I think it's precisely that is why it's important yeah and because a lot of us like I'm sure you hadn't suffered a loss before yeah and it's a complete minefield where actually no one really talks about it Mm. outside of more intimate circles Mm. so for you to be experiencing it for the first time yeah by yourself and for yourself must be incredibly difficult yeah no it was so can you just like tell me where you were in your f1 why one year at the time when tej passed away yeah so basically i had literally just got my results um it was in june so i went to Southampton. med school yeah okay so i went to southampton medical school um and i had got my results um absolutely over the moon (laughs) as you are you're like oh i finally have done this (laughs) all those years exactly um it was literally the best day of my life it was amazing was the sun out or yes (laughs) we were in a beer garden i was with tej i was with my two sisters yeah we were all celebrating um oh you've got two sisters yes okay okay. i do i do so do i (laughs) yeah Uh, then i've got a younger brother as well poor poor brother um but and then literally 14 days after um i was actually in in Tesco, you know, in the cafe in Tesco. Mm-mm. Yeah, we were. My <laughs> Random. Sister, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm a classy gal. <laughs> uh, my sister and I, we were planning my other sister's hen party. Okay. Because uh, we were going to go away to Greece. And she suddenly received a phone call. And in that phone call, I just saw her face drop. And she was told that her husband, um, my brother-in-law, Ted, had been in a car accident and was taken to a London trauma centre. So she put the phone down and I, you know, and she she told me this and I just said to her, don't worry, he's probably Mm. broken a leg, it's fine. Mm. Because you never think it's going to happen to you. Even though we experience it every day with our patients, Mm. you know, I think I'm superwoman. Mm. We don't, I don't feel that things happen to us because we are that doctor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And then I said to her, look, don't worry, it's fine. You know, he's he's broken something, it will be Mm. okay. so we were in the car, driving mm. to the hospital. Tried How to was the journey there? Absolutely horrible. My my sister was driving and she was so nervous. And I just tried to be a calming effect on her. You know, mm. I said to her, look, it will be okay. Don't worry. I'm the only medic in the family. Yeah. So everyone kind of turns to me when there's mm. a medical issue or something. You know, you can't get away from going to a party and then your aunt kind of shows yeah. you uh, <laughs> something like a lesion on her butt or something. Um yeah, and so I just tried to calm her down and she was okay. Mm. And I myself just literally thought it was yeah, something little. And I thought, you know what? Let me just call the hospital because Ted wasn't answering his phone. Okay. So I called Resus because I thought, let me start off with the worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah. And then that way I can just be reassured that this mm. is nothing. So I called Resus at 
the London Trauma Hospital. And the consultant who had dealt with Tej's trauma happened, coincidentally, answered the phone. And I said to him, my relative has been brought into A&E and was in a car accident. Can you tell me how he is? And he Where said, he is. yeah. And he said, look, um, I can't tell you a lot of information, mm-hmm. but we have had a young male come in who has been in a serious car accident. Mm-hmm. And I actually, for the first time, played the doctor card. So I said, I'm a doctor, <laughs> which was literally the first time I had Can said you it. <laughs> because I had just yeah, qualified no, literally two, two weeks ago. And it's your ago. family member. You want to... Yeah, yeah. You need to be there for Yeah, them. exactly. And I had my doctor hat on and I said, you know, I'm a doctor. It's okay. Like, mm-hmm. tell me what's happened. And he said, we've had a young male in who's had serious life-threatening injuries and he's now in theatre um, and they are removing his lung. Wow. Yeah. And I just was like, okay. And I then asked him, what were his observations? Oh my God. (laughs) Because I had my doctor hat on (laughs) and I just thought, let me, you know, that's just a question I would ask. And then he told me and I said, okay, all right. Well, you know, we are on our way. So we'll see you there. Put the phone down. My sister's still driving. I turned to her and I did not know what to say. Yeah. Um, She said, you know, what's happened? What's happened? And I said, don't worry. Um, Tej has been hurt in the accident, but it's okay. You know, they're They're doing something. Yeah, they're just doing some surgery on him, but it it will be fine. And she said, you know, I, I heard that something about the lung. And I said, oh, no, no, because I just wanted my sister to be safe whilst no, driving. No, of course. Bless then, you. Yeah, then when we got there, um, I kind of told her, and that was really, really difficult. Um, and that weight. Did you process it yourself? Um, I processed it after. So outside of the cardiothoracic intensive care unit, um, that weight was absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and he managed to get through it and he went to intensive care. I still had my doctor hat on in front of all my family because I felt that I had to play that role, mm. you know, to be the communicator between the medical team yeah, yeah. and my family who are non-medics mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and don't really understand this whole hospital process. Yeah. Um, and then after, when things kind of quietened down and he was settled in the intensive care unit, I called my best friend, walked away, and in the corridor, I literally just broke down. I said, oh my God, he's had a pneumonectomy he's going to die. Mm. Um, And then it's only then it kind of all settled in. Because, you know, you come across cases in the hospital and you're like, oh, this person's not going to survive. Mm. But you kind of know it, even though you throw everything at Mm. them. And you really hold on to that 1% that Mm. they will make it through. Mm -hmm. And that being my brother-in-law, who was literally my brother, Mm. um, was really difficult, really, Mm. really difficult. So, yeah. So he stayed in intensive care for six months, um, he needed something called ECMO, yeah. um, which is basically, for those who don't know, it's like a machine which does the work of your lungs. So it will provide oxygen to your blood and remove the carbon dioxide. And then we were told, like literally at the end of the first few weeks, that look, the only way he will survive is by having a lung transplant. Mm. Um, that is the only hope that he has. Yeah. Um, and six months he was in intensive care for. Wow. Yeah, and then, um, and I had started F1. Mm. Um, and then 
Luckily, that would have been a few months later. Yeah, mm. exactly. So this accident happened in June, and then in November is when we got the call that he had a lung. Um, but unfortunately, during his lung transplant, there was a complication, mm. um, and he he died during it. Um, so yeah, no, that was really difficult. Yeah, that must have been life changing for the family. Hundred percent, hundred percent. It was life changing from day one yeah. because we hadn't been through anything like this. We didn't know anyone else who had been through a car accident, or and you never think it's going to happen to you. No, no. never. And I remember doing some as I was doing some like reading this week on just like grief and the process. I was also like looking at the differences between those who suffer losses immediately mm. um, and those who suffer losses with people who've had like terminal conditions mm. and actually just the pro- the way your mind process things initially is so incredibly different yeah and you guys must have experienced that quite early on yeah no definitely um him being in intensive care for those six months gave us a chance to mm. communicate with him because yeah. he was able to talk to us we could communicate amazing um he you know, it, it was like he, he was a normal, but obviously yeah, yeah. not because he was on all these machines and couldn't do things. But we had that chance with mm-hmm. him, that time with him, knowing that he was critically ill. Yeah. Um, and it's so different, to, as you say, compared to, you know, suddenly one day someone just drops dead mm-hmm. like that. It, it is because you don't have your chance to say goodbye. Um, and I think that's where the intensive care setting is really nice. Yeah. Because it provides a time for families mm-hmm. to say bye to their loved ones yeah um and that is something that they will never be able to get back mm. and can provide some reassurance for them mm. and i see it every day you know being in intensive no, of course care. you must and did you find that did you know all that time that you were saying goodbye or were you kind of taking every day as it comes when you look back yeah do you know what that's a really interesting question because when you're a medic you have so much more insight compared to non-medics mm. so i remember um like a week into Tej's stay where my family were like oh he'll be out next week Mm. and I'm just there like guys I don't even think he is going to survive let alone be out by Christmas Mm. and it it was the summer did you communicate that to them or um I communicated yeah I did because I didn't want their expectations to be shattered yeah Mm. or just unreal so Mm. I said to them look guys this is going to be a really long process um and we're probably looking to Christmas I did I say that there's a high chance of mortality no I didn't Mm. um but that's because probably I felt it difficult to say myself yeah of course um and you are definitely one minute I have my doctor's hat on and then the next minute I have yeah, my sister hat. Yeah, that's your hat. brother. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And that was really, really, really difficult. Mm. Really difficult. Wow. That's a story, you know. <laughs> and so over this period of time, you're yeah. also <laughs> playing doctor in real life. <laughs> yes, yes. So, yeah, I forgot about that bit. So, um, so tell me what jobs you were doing or Yeah, what so doing I, I started off doing a surgical job um, where I was mainly doing urology and I remember when when we got the phone call that there was a lung available Mm. I was on call um, for surgery and we got that phone call in the morning and I said to myself oh I would have just wanted to leave yeah I really I do not I really wanted to but Mm. you feel like you've got a duty because you feel guilty if you leave if I leave 
who's going to be clerking the patients in any, you know, who's going to be that extra pair of hands on the mm-hmm. wards for those discharge summaries and whatever, if they mm-hmm. need to call me into theatre. And I think a lot of the time as doctors, we put other people in front of ourselves mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And by by the time I got to him, unfortunately, he he had died. Mm-hmm. And I so I didn't get to say my last goodbye. Um, and anything that, what I have taken from that is I need to put myself first. Mm. So if there is ever another situation like this that I will come across in my own life, mm. I know that I need to drop my work. Yeah. And instead of putting other people, mm. I need to put myself and my family first. Mm. And that was something that was really difficult to understand, but I think it's something really important as well. Because yeah. there's no point in helping other people mm. if you can't even help your own family and yourself. No, sure. But then also, conversely, it's also quite difficult to do that, being the, probably the most junior person on your team mm. at the time. Yeah. And had you spoken to anyone that day to let you, let them yeah. know? Because I'm sure that if that was you being the senior, I kn- yeah. only knowing you for less than an hour now, yeah. I know that you would have told that junior to drop everything yeah. don't worry we're going to sort everything out yeah what was a response or support for you yeah. in that day you know what it's really funny that you say this because I didn't actually tell anyone mm. I didn't tell anyone at work mm. um and I think I was embarrassed I yeah I I was embarrassed that this was happening in the sense that I had a family member who was critically ill and I was going through a really hard time mm. and I didn't want to communicate that with my team. Mm. You know, they just saw me as the happy Jacintha who comes yeah, into work, yeah. gets on with her job, you know, cracks jokes. They didn't see me as the one that when she left work, she would then be going into central London mm. to then another hospital to then camp literally till midnight by an intensive care bed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think if I could tell my F1 self again, it would be definitely to be open, share what you're going through mm. so that you can have that support at work. Yeah. And I guess that is something why I feel that we do need to be talking about this. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose I suppose it's also it's also difficult to know who to speak to as well sometimes at work. Yeah. Um did you have any support systems that you were able to like build into your work? workplace at the time like be it friends or colleagues or educational supervisor was anyone that would stand out that was supportive or listening ear for you um so I I spoke to my registrar about it at the Mm. time because it's gonna sound really silly I I received (laughs) a text from Tej and he and he left me a voice note okay and the fact that he had a tracheostomy and was talking and it was the first time I had heard his voice in like two months that's wild because we had been lip reading um so I was lip reading him so that's the way we communicated and then finally just hearing his voice and I played it on the ward and I just burst into tears because I was so happy just to hear from him and it, it was the best moment ever and my reg was standing next to me I was like, what is going on? (laughs) And I I just shouted. I was like, Ted just spoke to me. (laughs) And he's like, huh? And I said, he's got a trackie and he just talked. He said he wanted a Nando's. Is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so I spoke to him about it. And I guess that was good because 
I think talking is a really good thing and you get to offload a little bit. But in in terms of did I talk about it with my supervisors? No, Mm -hmm. I didn't. And, you know, I really should have, Mm -hmm. you know. You know, almost when you're like looking through a booklet and it's like, okay, what's an educational supervisor there for? Then you're like reading Mm. through all the the rubbish stuff and then you come and then it, and like probably in big bold letters, it's probably anything traumatic that's going on with you. Because that is, that's real trauma for you guys to be dealing with such a heavy burden. Yeah. And not to call Ted or his experience a burden. Yeah. But it is a lot yeah. to deal with emotionally. Yeah, no, definitely. And mm-hmm. it, it was a burden. Yeah. Because no one wants that stress mm. of having a loved one in an intensive care unit, knowing that every day that's probably the last time you'll see them mm. or knowing that you just have to wait for a, an organ yeah. so that they can be alive, you know, and seeing my sister. It sounds like a movie, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> a really dramatic movie script, honestly. You know, I, I wish it was a movie and not real. <laughs> you know, there, there were days where yeah. all I wanted to do was just close my eyes mm. and sleep and just not open them because mm. I knew when I would open my eyes, it would be back to reality. Yeah. But yeah, no, but I've got through it. Yeah. And that is, that is the main message that mm-hmm. I want to send to people. Okay. Um, and so if, yeah. if I ask you, so after he died, yeah. um, intensive, in intensive care, mm. how did you process your grief? And was there like a certain role that you took on with your family? Mm. My main concern was my sister. Um, I literally just wanted to wrap her in cotton wool Mm. and protect her so much. And I played that role of protector and the one with the doctor's hat. Mm. Um, And, you know, I was a communicator to her friends. I was the one who sent the messages out being Mm. like, unfortunately, Ted has died. So I... I, I played that role. So did I process it myself? No, mm. I didn't. Did I avoid it? Yeah, I suppressed it. I went to work. Mm. I even had an intensive care job myself as an F1. Oh, did you? Yeah, okay. at the end of F1, I did ITU. And I don't know how I did it. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm actually just, just sitting here confused. <laughs> I look back and think to myself, how the hell did I go into that intensive care yeah. unit? And I didn't even tell anyone. And I think I had just survived by putting it in a box Mm. and putting it away. Mm. And it was only later, I would say in like the last two years that through things like counseling and Mm -hmm. talking about it, have I actually processed my own emotions Mm -hmm. and got through it. Um, You know, I've seen my sister who's come so far, Mm. so far in how she's dealt with her grief and her loss. Mm. And I, look at that with admiration yeah and I then say to myself you know what I even though he wasn't my husband Mm -hmm. we are all affected by loss whether it's our patient whether it's our neighbor Mm -hmm. whether it's our family and we also need to process it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so yeah and so you told me that you were in ITU and then Mm. initially I think you were doing surgery but then was there anything that ever like triggered you when you're at work to kind of break you out of your like practical doctor hat on presenter? Yeah. Was there anything that triggered you in any yeah. of those conversations? Yeah, no. And even now when yeah. I get the young patient come uh-huh. in and, and I see the family all by the bedside just mm. crying and literally holding to that hope, it reminds me it reminds me of Tej and what we went through um, because you empathise so much. Mm. And something that I've learned through counseling is what empathy is Mm. and 
we 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 describe it as the way that I see empathy okay. is imagine you're trying on a suit for size you're not wearing it you're mm-hmm. just seeing you're just seeing if it fits mm-hmm. but you're going to give it back to that person okay that is the way that I deal with empathy now mm-hmm. in the sense that when I break bad news to family when I tell them that their loved one has died in the in the unit I'm trying on their suit for size mm-hmm. and I'm feeling what they're feeling mm-hmm. but I know I'm going to give it back to them yeah. and then move on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um yeah and that's something that I've learned okay and so practically when you are giving that bad news how do you go about it yeah so one thing that I've learned is that it's really important to use the d word which is <laughs> death because we are always using the word loss mm. or pass away mm. you know you lose your grandma in Tesco you don't they're not lost kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we need to, I, I feel like we need to stop using euphemisms okay. because it doesn't really get through to them. Mm-hmm. I know when I was in that position of being that patient relative, the intensivist and anesthetist said to us, said the sentence, Tej has died. Mm-hmm. And that resonated with us so much compared to if, if they say, you know, I'm sorry, he's passed away. Mm-hmm. And I, I see it with my own, yeah. with my own patients. Mm-hmm. You need to be really honest with mm-hmm. them. And even experiences with my friend, she's recently lost her aunt. She said, all I wanted was clarification. Yeah. We just wanted to be told that she was dying, mm-hmm. but they never used that word. It was always, oh, you know, we'll see how she goes. Yeah. Oh, okay, so I think we're going to stop the chemotherapy now. Mm-hmm. No one actually said she will die yeah this is we are approaching the end of her life now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i think honesty is something which patients so really appreciate and i've had feedback myself mm. from relatives and they say thank you for being so honest with us mm. because they really do appreciate yeah, that yeah exactly and you don't need to molly, molly coddle them as a doctor who's only met their family member once um, yeah. they just need that clarification don't they yeah and that reminds me of one time when I was in recess because I work in A&E mostly yeah. as, as a locum but um in my recess we had a family come in and the gentleman he had advanced dementia mm. um and he wasn't eating very much and mm-hmm. he was just kind of declining and deteriorating quite slowly over a long period of time and essentially I remember there was two family members one brother and one sister I remember just talking to the brother and I just realized how Initially, I thought he was in denial, but then later I came to realize that actually he's now met lots of different doctors along this five-year journey yeah. of decline, and no one has ever used the word death or dying with him. Yeah, And so it wasn't denial that I was like coming up to, yeah. fa- to face with him. It was actually just lack of awareness of yeah. where his father was at this time. And the sister, I remember she came up to me afterwards and she said, thank you for being so clear with us. Yeah this is what I thought was happening. Yeah. But everyone in my family is talking about it like he's going to get better. Yeah. But there's no yeah. getting better from a term, like a terminal condition like that. So just hearing you say that, that's important for me yeah, as no, a clinician definitely. to take forward with me. So definitely. it is interesting how we try and protect yeah. our patients. But also, do you think there's an aspect of trying to protect ourselves as doctors? We... We don't like the aspect of knowing that we failed, mm. that we can't save that patient. Mm. We don't. It's also uncomfortable. Like on yeah. a practical note. 100%. 100% yeah. is uncomfortable. Because when you use the word taboo, when we were talking about it just yeah. before this um, episode, I was like, yeah, this is something that 
we we're not protected from society mm. we're also mm. people who live in society mm. so of course we're going to share the same taboo so actually we need to recognize those yeah. taboos that we probably are afraid to like go into those conversations yeah and kind of force ourselves to be clearer with our words yeah but I think also there's a taboo mm. amongst us as well. In what way? In the sense that if you're affected by okay. a patient's loss, mm. you know, because you may get to know your patient really well. Mm. I know in the intensive care unit, I see them every day. I meet their relatives every day. Sometimes they have really long stays, just like Tej, for yeah. six months. Yeah. His medical team and his nurses became our family. Yeah. You know, they came to his funeral. They, I'm still in contact with them now. Mm. They were our family. They were our hope. Yeah. Um, and so you you may go home and be affected. You may cry. You may mm. let it out. But we need to talk about it amongst ourselves. Mm. I remember a case and, it you know, it was really sad. And it was a long-term marriage, 35 years, and she died on their anniversary. Oh, wow. And the next day, my registrar came in and said, oh, I was really upset yesterday. Mm. And I turned around to her and said, so was I. Yeah. And we literally spent about 20 minutes just talking about how we felt about it. Mm. And yet, we don't do that no, enough. We don't, we don't debrief enough. Mm. And because it is a taboo. Mm -hmm. was a I thought you were going to tell me that you guys are really good at debriefing. So we are, okay. in the sense that if it's after a cardiac arrest, mm -hmm. we always have a debrief after um and especially like when i lead them as well because sometimes i've got student nurses mm -hmm. sometimes i've got student nurses so i go through you know what we could have done better how mm -hmm. can we move forward if there were any concerns but i mean that's all very formal yeah how did you feel on a personal level mm -hmm. um let's have an informal chat about that mm -hmm. you know just with one-to-one -one or something like that yeah um yeah there was actually a study amongst oncologists, I think it was done in the US, and they found that majority of them felt ashamed, mm. felt embarrassed, felt that they weren't, they weren't, it, it was a sign of weakness yeah, to be upset yeah. of the fact that their patients had died mm. um, and that they were embarrassed of experiencing grief as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that is definitely a taboo amongst us as doctors yeah. and we really need to break it through. Mm. And it's not weakness. It just shows, you know it's what, you're human. Yeah. You are human. And if anything, you can then relate to your patients so much better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because the patients do appreciate people who can talk to them on a level exactly. and understand what they're going through. Exactly. And um, rather than someone who's just so focused on being so resilient that mm. actually they just like lose all human connection. Yeah. And, th and that was me. Mm. I... I thought it was a weakness. Yeah. I that's how I trained, I isn't, there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then slowly, what's happened over the years? Um, because this happened in 2014, mm. and then my dad died in 2015. Um, I just felt that my bucket was being emptied and emptied and emptied mm. until there was nothing. Yeah. And then you've got the extra pressures of exams. Mm. You know, the night shifts, the weekends, your own personal relationships. Yeah. And so with that analogy that you used of the bucket being emptied can you talk us about the journey until your father it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Passed away. Yeah, so I was an F2. Um, I was working in the Royal London at the time, which is in East London. So you went back to the same hospital? So, um, So Tej... Um, didn't die in the Royal London. Okay. He he was based in West London. I see. I see. Um, he was actually in George's. Okay. Um, no, I didn't work. I didn't work there. But um, so I was really into pre-hospital medicine before um, this had happened. Hence why I had applied for F one and F two in London. I, and I wanted the Royal London. Yeah, oh, exactly. You like, you're a little geek. I know. <laughs> I'm so sad. <laughs> I didn't go where you know my boy, my non-existent boyfriend was. <laughs> I, I want, yeah, I went where I thought I could do oh, the whole like pre-hospital. It, I like it. <laughs> so I was an Amy and I absolutely loved it. But then again, I was seeing trauma every single yeah. day. And every day I was reminded of the situation of Ted. And that led to my own anxieties as well, um, which counselling really helped because mm. I was scared of driving. Yeah. Um, and when did you seek counselling? So I, I, so my... I'm really lucky in that my family's really open. Mm -hmm. And my mum said to me, you need to get counselling. Whether it's through work or something like that, you need to do it because Mm -hmm. it is so helpful. And um, members of my family had it. But I just felt like, no, I don't need this. You know, the gym is sorting me out because that was the way that I I dealt with things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But actually it was the counseling that really helped because I couldn't I couldn't drive anymore because mm-hmm. I was scared that I would die. And that was just positively reinforced yeah. by being in a trauma center doing A E every yeah. day. Mm-hmm. Um so anyway, going back to my dad, I was on I was on nights and I was sleeping during the day and it was the afternoon, woke up, so all these missed calls. Um, from my mom called her she didn't answer her phone called my aunt and my aunt answered and said um your your mom's found dad collapse and had to do cpr and the ambulance are now there resuscitating him and i just my heart sank i cried and i said oh my god dad's died Mm. and my aunt said to me what are you on about Cynthia?" Like, it's fine. They're resuscitating him. It will be okay. And I'm like, no, "No, auntie, it is not okay. When this happens, you know, there's a 5% chance of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest surviving. But obviously, being the only medic, you you only understand that because non-medics, all they watch is Holby City and Casualty and Mm -hmm. they see, you know, some chest compressions and then the person's drinking a cup of tea the next day, you know? (laughs) And that doesn't happen mm. because that is not reality. Mm. Um, 
And that's why maybe when we have DNR conversations, yeah. families have a certain point of view because they mm. are only seeing what the media portrays, yeah. which is so incorrect. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so and then my aunt was like, "What?" And then she started crying, and then and then I went home. Yeah, I was going to say. So you were by yourself at the time when you saw the missed calls. Yeah. And- so I I had flatmates. I had other F um, twos that I was living with, and they were really helpful. Mm. I told them what happened, and then I just got a taxi back home, um, and I called my best friend who just dropped. She, she was working in a local hospital. She was in her clinic, and mm. she just left her clinic and mm. actually saw my dad before I did. Mm. Um, so because you always feel like things aren't being done properly yeah. and I just wanted someone there to I make sure yeah, to make course. sure it's okay because yeah. every day we mm-hmm. see things that go wrong or like little mishaps and mm-hmm. I just wanted it to all be okay. Yeah. Um, so I spoke to the ambulance team on the phone and they said like, look, we've done nine cycles now. I, I think we need to stop. And I said to him, you know what? That's absolutely fine. And the reason being is because this is crazy literally four months before I had sat my family down around Mm. a table Mm. and I had shown them a video of what CPR actually was and we went through what we would want and our end of life decisions no you didn't I swear we did that I swear and the reason I did that with my family I feel like I need to process it (laughs) that's actually mad but amazing yeah and the reason I did that was because I didn't want to be a hypocrite because I felt so I felt frustrated having conversations with families and their relatives because I could see the stress on their shoulders that they were like oh I, I, I don't know what what my husband would have wanted oh I don't know what my family would have wanted and you just saw the stress on their shoulders trying to make this decision of resuscitation end of life wishes whether they would want all these tubes and things like that Mm. and I felt this can all be this process can be made so much easier if we just spoke to our family about it you know over a cup of tea Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a high stress situation it doesn't have to be a sad discussion it should, why is it we talk about birth and we talk about things like that, but mm-hmm. yet something which is so important that we will One all of the experience most things. Mm. and something where you want to be able to have dignity when mm. you die. Mm. And it's a conversation that you can have with your loved ones and it can just make things so much easier. And I compare it to to when I have organ donation conversations, mm-hmm. the families who have had that conversation, mm. they are the ones who bring up organ donation first. Yeah, yeah. They are the ones who are like, you, you just see the weight off their shoulders yeah, yeah. compared to the ones that haven't. Yeah. And that's really sad to see. So um, so yeah, I sat everyone down around the table and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna show them what CPR actually is because mm-hmm. it's not like what you see on casualty. Mm-hmm. It's really, harsh yeah Yeah. and um my dad said you know what I actually don't want to be resuscitated Mm. and that was something do you remember that quite clearly really clearly because Mm. my siblings my two sisters and my brother were shocked that he said that Mm because they were like what you don't want to be resuscitated (laughs) why not like dad but I could understand where my dad was coming Mm. from because we've got that medical perspective yeah you know, we see the elderly patients who are slowly deteriorating and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, so when so when I spoke to the ambulance over the phone, 
I, I didn't feel guilty. Mm. I felt like, you know what? I've had this conversation with my dad. I know what he would have wanted. Mm. It's okay. Mm. It's okay. What a conversation to have, though, over the phone. Yeah. And I think I had my medical hat on. Yeah. 100%. Okay. There's some situations you just have to. <laughs> you have to, like, have all the avoidance in your yeah. eyes because yeah, I know. that's just too much to deal with yeah. all of a sudden. Yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. But it, it can be a negative as well. And I think yeah. it definitely was a negative because I was having my medical hat mm. on all the time and I wasn't dealing with issues mm. until I actually sat down and spoke about it mm. through counselling. I was just going to ask you that, actually. At what point was it when you are like, look, you need to deal with this and mm. talk about it mm. rather than just playing doctor all the time? Um, so I think when I felt my bucket was empty mm. and I had nothing else to give. Mm. I had nothing else to give to work. I had nothing mm. else to give to my patients. And I had nothing else to give to myself. Mm, mm. That's when I was like, you know what? I actually do need help here. Yeah. Um, and then I went on to... Um, you know what? There's actually not a lot of resources for okay. doctors and bereavement. Mm. And it was really difficult. Really difficult to to find out. Um, Were you looking for something specific for doctors? or? Yeah, I was. Because mm-hmm. I thought... Why is there nothing for doctors and nurses that w- that we can have counselling mm. for? Mm. Why why is it not spoken about? Like I don't know with you and at work, mm. if a consultant or senior has ever said to you, "Oh, you know, there are counselling services out there," whenever you come across a trauma or anything like that. Mm, actually, it's weird you ask that because I've only ever had one person ever do that and that's just because I've got so I did an elderly medicine job as my last F2 job yeah so that's a very different environment first Mm. of all and the mindset Mm. is very different also my consultant he's been a consultant for absolutely years and educational supervisors for like decades essentially Mm. so before you join him he'll send you this email and it'll list all the different counseling services all the different um, places that you can reach out for like free support and also like paid support and that's before he even gets to know you. So yeah, no, that's amazing. That kind that of is absolutely amazing. But the thing, and it's just like you're saying, you, you can't wait until something happens. Yeah. You have to anticipate. Mm. You have to anticipate these scenarios beforehand. Yeah, and that's why I think it's just so amazing that you guys, as a family, were able to be so open because not everyone mm. is open with the, with their yeah, families no, and sit down and have a conversation about what does the end of your life look like. Yeah. No, exactly. Because it's not an easy thing to bring up. No, it's not. It isn't. But having it over a cup of tea and cake is all right. It's (laughs) better. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) No, bless you guys. And can I ask, with the journey of grief, because you've experienced it so much and so closely with your family, do you feel like you made that journey as a family or do you feel like you made that journey like on an individual level? Yeah. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. I think we've made it as a family... Mm-hmm. But so imagine like a roller coaster. She's doing a lot of explanation with hands <laughs> at the moment. I'm like verbalized. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna break out into a dance scene. <laughs> um, so imagine being on a roller coaster and you've got a carriage. So I felt that my family were in a couple of carriages ahead, okay. and then I was the one behind. So I was kind of lagging a bit. Um, And that's because I think I had counselling a lot later Mm. than what my sister had. Mm. Um, And also it was that feeling of protection for my family. Mm. So I wanted to look after them first. I wanted to look after my sister. I wanted to look after my mum. And then I thought, 
okay, I need to look after myself. Mm. And that's something as doctors that we don't do very well. Mm. Um, it's so probably yeah. part of your like makeup, <laughs> wanting to help other people in your career, but also yeah. being in that position in your family and also yeah. being a doctor in your family. Yeah, it can't no. have helped. No, definitely. And as I said before, I think that I'm superwoman sometimes. Mm. You know, I feel like I can get through anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we learn about, you know, one in four medics and doctors will experience a mental health concern mm-hmm. during their lifetime. You never think that you're actually going to be that statistic mm-hmm. um, until something happens to you. But you know what? That's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. And it's also okay to not be okay. Yeah. That's something I've realized as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if anything was to happen like this, hopefully it doesn't. But if anything so traumatic was to happen again, how would you, what tools do you think you have now that would help you deal with various situations in, in the future? Or how would you like support your juniors in mm. dealing with such yeah, no, I would definitely want them to be open, open to me about okay. it. So I want them to talk to me um, because that's something that I didn't, I didn't really feel that I could do. Um, so I would strongly suggest if anyone is going through bereavement or grief at work, whether mm-hmm. that be a loved one or a patient, inform work how you're feeling, mm-hmm. whether that be a senior or your educational supervisor, as you mm-hmm. said. You know, it was so great that he sent out those resources, um, and we shouldn't feel embarrassed. We shouldn't feel ashamed because mm-hmm. we are all normal. And you'll be surprised because when you talk to a colleague, mm-hmm. they will then open up to you oh, yeah. and say, oh, you know what? I was also experiencing mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it literally then. blows my mind yeah. when I realize that like my colleagues have like real human exactly. events and going on in life. when they're seniors as well. <laughs> yeah. I still get, you know, a bit blown away mm-hmm. when a consultant, when I see a consultant cry or a bit mm-hmm. upset. I'm yeah. like, oh, okay. They yeah. are also human. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, definitely inform work. Um, I would say in terms of coping with grief, find your outlet. Mm. So for me, that was the gym, Mm -hmm. um, big up gym box in Stratford, (laughs) (laughs) but it literally saved my life. I feel like that opened not too long ago. It opened up we're in 2014. Okay. Yeah. So I'm one of the founder members. (laughs) 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 Unfortunately, I'm not a member of it anymore, but it it literally did save my life. I met people there. We used to train like four or five times a week. They became my family. Mm. We spoke to each other about what we were going through and we took it out on the weights. Yeah. We threw the weights around. Mm. That's how we released Mm -hmm, our mm -hmm. anger and my stress. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was weird because I found the heavier the weight I lifted, yeah. the stronger I felt mm-hmm, and the stronger mm-hmm. I became mm-hmm. meant that my guard was... Am I talking mentally as well, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. and the heavier the weight I go, the stronger than I would feel, the stronger I feel, mm. the stronger I am mm. and the more resilient I am. Mm. Um, however, I've learned that that can only last you so long because yeah. then you've got to sort your mind out. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and then that's when the counseling then came into play but you know find your outlet whether Mm -hmm. that's painting or poetry or Mm -hmm. writing or um, just spending time with family and friends Mm -hmm. like just do the things so let's talk about your counseling so how Mm. did you find it like how did you literally find where to go yeah so as I said it was really difficult and I went online Um, I googled actually um, counseling for doctors and not a lot came up just mm. all these kind of papers but nothing like no resources what, like medical papers yeah and like no 
Here's a study on yeah, how people exactly. have suffered losses in exactly. their life. Um, yeah, so I went on to the British um, Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy, okay. the BACP website. Mm-hmm. And they're really good because they've got a list of registered um, counsellors that you can go to. Um, and they specialise in different things. So I wanted a counsellor who who was more trained for bereavement. Okay. So, so I went so I went for that. Um and then you're not you're not gonna click with a counsellor straight away. Yeah, I was gonna say, because there's yeah, like you people don't. I just don't click with. <laughs> yeah, so I went to see this one lady, didn't really click with her, mm. went to see another one, didn't click with her. And I was like, I said, I remember saying to my sister, look, I can't, I can't do this. She was like, try again, try again. And I tried and I finally found someone who just understood me. Mm-hmm. And honestly, amazing. Counseling is literally the gym for the mind mm. it, it is so good mm. um so i definitely recommend that and can i ask in counseling what what was it that really was beneficial for you because i like read so much about counseling mm. and i've never actually done mm. it myself but when i look i see that people get released from conversations mm. they also get insights into the way that they behave yeah was there anything in particular that shocked you about counseling or made you think oh no this is what i needed I felt guilty talking to friends and family. Did you? Yeah, because okay. I didn't want to offload my burden onto them, especially mm. my family. Mm. Like, why do I want to tell my sister what I'm going through when she is going through something 10 times worse, having lost her husband? Mm. Why do I want to tell my mum that I'm upset when she's also lost her husband? Mm-hmm. You know, why did I want to do that? You know, why do I want to talk to my friends about it all the time so I felt seeing a counsellor seeing someone unbiased mm-hmm. meant that I didn't feel guilty offloading to them um and I made each session really useful okay yeah no, that is I think good. that was the main thing but for you me. made each session useful yeah in the what sense that I knew I had one hour to okay. sit down <laughs> and talk about something um and I didn't feel guilty doing that totally no I feel you I feel you because they would they, they were someone I didn't really know sometimes it's easier to speak to a stranger than it is to speak to another mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. yeah like that judgment is gone mm. as well yeah and mm. I know that even you were mentioning today some like groups that you can find online yeah um, and I've seen it in the media very recently particularly mm. like with I know there was a documentary on the BBC earlier last week yeah and I can't remember his name George something or George Shelley yeah George Shelley yeah that documentary was amazing mate it was so great really really good I watched it a couple of days ago actually and he's so brave to talk about Mm. losing his sister and the way that he's dealt with it especially being a young male and we know male mental health is really topical Mm. at the moment um especially with suicide being the highest cause of death in young males so yeah it's really brave and courageous Mm -hmm. what he's done uh, yeah, and I thought it was so amazing that mm. when he attended, so there's this one part of the show when he attends this group and it's all about people who've lost their siblings. Yeah. And they all just sit down and just talk about their siblings. Yes. And I remember the girl, she said something and it really stuck with me. And she said, I found it really difficult to say my sibling's name. Yeah. And I remember when yeah. I... One, the first time that I ever experienced like such a close loss, my friend died. Her name's Doyen, by the way. And she died the day I was doing my OSCE exam. No, the day, oh, so I finished my OSCE exam. I found out that she had died like later on that evening. Yeah. And then I had my exam, my written exams, which I actually failed and had to reset. Man, that must have been reset. so difficult. But it was like, you know, when you're like, oh, I can deal with failing an exam. Yeah. Like, I don't mm. even care because the, yeah. 
biggest losses her yeah, life here. You put it into perspective. Yeah, yeah, don't yeah. You? it totally puts stuff into perspective. I remember finding it really difficult to say her name, mm. and I realized that when I bumped into her little sister at a wedding earlier this year. So this is like two years down the line, mm. and I was like, "Oh my gosh, you look so much like," and I could not say her yeah. name. And yeah. then I heard went and watched that documentary, and I was like. Wow, it's very powerful to be able to say the name of the person that you yeah. lost. Yeah, no, definitely. So, yeah. That is something in my family that we always try and do. So mm. we still talk about Tedge. Um, but I, I get you because I really miss saying dad. Yeah. When I go Aww. home, sometimes <laughs> it's going to sound really weird. Sometimes I actually just say, dad, do you want a cup of tea? Because <laughs> I always used to say that and I miss saying that. Mm. So I'll just talk to myself and say out loud, dad, do you want a cup of tea? Mm. And because that makes me feel better. Yeah. So if you want to say something then just say it yeah. like don't feel silly yeah because it allows that person to continue to move mm. on doesn't it especially when they've got had such an impact on your life yeah no definitely yeah. just want to like also talking about you know we mentioned vision boards earlier mm-hmm. so if you do ever feel lost and a bit off the rails because when I experienced the okay. losses I kind of felt you know where am I going with my mm. life you know work's already stressed you've got the exams I felt writing it down and creating a vision board of what I wanted to achieve in Mm -hmm. my in the separate aspects of my life really helpful Mm -hmm. so for example for work I had you know try and get into anesthetics Mm -hmm. pass my ATLS and what does that look like yeah yeah survive the year Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) um you know I had travel I wanted to go to Saint Lucia Mm -hmm. um I had a section on charity on my vision board. Mm-hmm. I wanted to donate blood because mm-hmm. I hadn't done that until I was an F2. Oh. And I felt like that was really important. And where did you put this vision board? Was it something On my wall. Could, okay. So yeah, so as soon as I woke up, I would see this big piece of paper on my wall and it had just everything that I wanted to Amazing. achieve. And it kind of made me have focus in my yeah. life again when everything around me was breaking mm-hmm. down. And it's it's also these reminders that you can just see without having to make too much effort. Yeah. Because I know similar people who would do the same thing and write it in a diary. Yeah. But the second your diary is closed, that's the second yeah. that you're not able to go back and look on yeah. what your um, goals are. Mm. So out of place, out of mind. Completely. Mm. And the way we work as human beings is just to kind of focus on our short-term goals. Yeah. So until you put those long-term goals up yeah. and know the ways that you get them, I think yeah. it actually it's a really, really, mm. really powerful method. It creates hope as well. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And you can turn something negative into a positive. Mm-hmm. Like I did tough mudder I did yeah. the half marathon and I raised money for KSS air ambulance because that's Aww, you know they cool. saved Tedge yeah so it made a positive out of the yeah. negative yeah and can I ask in that f1 f2 year just because that, that was the times in which you um these people died yeah what were your like overriding emotions at that time do you feel like you your emotions changed a lot or do you mm. feel like you had anger hope sadness mm. what what did you feel like during those times you know, going back to that roller coaster analogy, uh-huh. that's exactly how it is. Mm. Healing is not linear. Mm. Grief is not linear. Mm. One day you will feel absolutely fine and you go through the five stages of grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, your denial, your anger, your depression, and I can't remember the others. Mm. You will go through that. Mm-hmm. And just when you feel like you're, you're okay. Like, oh, I'm sorted. Yeah. I'm sorted, mate. <laughs> but trust me, you go to Tesco <laughs> and you see something and you burst into tears. <laughs> But that's normal. That yeah. that that is normal. You know, I went into Tesco last month. I saw a bottle of ketchup and I cried because it mm. reminded me of Tej because uh, my sister had an argument with him over ketchup one day. <laughs> but you know what? That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. And I get text messages from friends saying, oh, you know, I've just cried about this. And it's like healing is not linear mm-hmm. and it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. 
oh, I like that. I'm going to like keep that phrase in my mind. It's okay not yeah. to be okay. No, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so Jacintha, we started off this, well, I started off this episode with a little bit of a spiel about you. And we've talked about loss, we've talked about grief, but what we haven't talked about as much is organ donation. Yeah. So tell everyone a little bit about organ donation and also what you're trying to achieve with it. Yeah, sure. So with organ donation, um, as you know, there is a register that we currently have. Um, is it opt-in, opt-out at the moment? What so is it? it's currently opt-in, but in 2020, I think it's going to move to opt-out. It's not set, but that is what the government are aiming towards. And how do you feel about that? I think it's a positive. Yes, I do. I just want to say, <laughs> just wanted to clarify. <laughs> Definitely think it's a positive, but most importantly, mm-hmm. what I, you know, it's not even about people registering. Yeah. All I want people to do is have that conversation. Mate, yeah. Or not even have that conversation. Research what it's about, mm-hmm. or talk about what it's about. Yeah. Bounce or what each it other means off. for you specifically. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly, mm-hmm. and have that conversation with your loved ones. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to break that taboo of organ donation, especially amongst the Black and Asian ethnic minorities. Thirty mm-hmm. percent of BAME community are on the organ donation list, mm-hmm. you know, and we make up 11% of the UK population. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a discrepancy here. Mm-hmm. There is a longer wait for the BAME community compared to the white population just due to, you know, uh, blood types and so forth, yeah. waiting for an organ. Mm-hmm. And I feel that's because we are not having these conversations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a taboo. It's something that we can't talk about. Mm-hmm. So I'm really trying to break through that. And the more we talk, then the lesser taboo it will become. And then hopefully if people want to donate, then they can register onto it. Yeah. And I think even like we were saying earlier on, it's really important for family members mm. of people who are in the process of dying yeah. or coming towards the end of the life of their life to understand what their family members want. Because actually a lot of the time, even the reasons people say no to DNA CPR yeah. or no to wanting to donate their family members organs is because mm. they don't want to like disrespect their family member yeah, in any way exactly so exactly. they just all, all everyone is trying to do is protect family members at this point yeah it seems no like. definitely but also remember that even if you are on the mm-hmm. register your family can still refuse for you to donate mm-hmm. and that is something not a lot of people yeah. know about yeah because we would never go against uh, no, relatives no. so if if a patient is on the register but their family don't want them to donate then we would obviously go with the family. Mm -hmm. But that's why if you are on the register, if you do want to donate, you need to tell your loved ones Mm -hmm. about it and share share what you want. Mm -hmm. So actually, Jacintha, um, I remember an an intensivist came into one of our A&E teaching sessions to talk to us as A&E doctors about actually having conversations with family members who come in to recess um, about organ donation. Mm. Now, something that I remember from that conversation is that... um, he was talking about making sure you're having a very open conversation with yeah. the family. Yeah. And instead of just saying, hi, um, can we take some organs? But mm. rather say, okay, as part of this process, yeah. what we would like to do is also have the option of um, donating organs to other people who may need it. Yeah. Now that doesn't take anything away from your family and all the care that we want to receive, but it's better to have these conversations earlier on. Yeah. So for doctors who aren't intensivists, what sort of advice would you give them or what sorts of ways in your hospital are they empowered to have conversations about organ donations with patients? Yeah, so I think it normally comes into the process of your DNR conversations, Do you? doesn't okay. it? Um, so when you talk about DNR, because then you're kind of talking okay. about your end of life okay. um, decisions. So it can be brought up then. Mm. But also just 
generally just having a conversation about how they feel mm. um what they're going through you know i've got renal transplant patients who i who need a kidney mm. and we talk about organ okay. donation or just generally my patients on intensive care mm-hmm. um who aren't even at an organ donation stage we just generally so for example i had someone who watched a tv program and someone died and then they were just having a conversation about organ donation or it can be something so simple they see a poster mm-hmm. and then that conversation comes about yeah so i don't think there is ever a right time unfortunately yeah. but that's why that's why these conversations just need to be had. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So with, there's a really good charity um, called Live Life, Give Life um, that I've written and, and I've shared my story for. And I'm hopefully going to, I'm in the process of doing information leaflets for families who have a loved one in intensive care mm-hmm. and then hopefully doctors as well, because it is something that is, that is really big dealing with grief. Yeah. And it's something that we all go through as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Jacintha, because we're coming to the end of the mm. episode now, and we've spoken about a lot of things, and I know we can continue with this conversation. Yeah. Hopefully it wasn't too depressing. <laughs> no, no, it was so great. And it's just an insight into what people go through. Yeah. So thank you for sharing your story with us. Thanks That's for okay. sliding into the DMs. <laughs> <laughs> so, aside from your work on organ donation, and yeah. of course, all it takes to book up being an anesthetic training yeah i'm still struggling with the word mate so am i (laughs) and i'm one apparently (laughs) so what is what's going on for you like in the coming years and yeah before we close yeah do you know that's really interesting because i'm i've just sat the anesthetic exams oh my god they are so hard i saw saw the image of you like taking down all your like material from the wall i was like oh my gosh it looks like she's back in uni yeah literally literally it it was terrible i had no life no life for like eight months but no um i managed to get through it somehow somewhere someone got me through those exams um but I'm at a period of my life where I need to put myself first Mm -hmm. I'm a bit exhausted a bit exhausted of nights Mm. and weekends Mm. and I just need to chill out for a little bit I haven't had a break haven't I went straight um I did med school went straight into f1 f2 Mm -hmm. um and then straight into anesthetics Mm. so you also chose an area of medicine that's like not that easy to go through slowly yeah yeah unfortunately I yeah anesthetics (laughs) like I'm not saying there's someone to blame yeah, here, but... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I wish I was that personality. You could just choose something just chill easy. Yeah, yeah, just chill. But you know what? I'm learning. I'm learning. Um, I'm learning that I actually just yeah. need to chill now um, cool. and put myself first and do things that interest me. Um, I want to get back into yoga mm-hmm. and the gym because movement is really my it's medicine. It's so important. It's so important. Yeah, movement is my medicine and it makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you need to go through dips to really understand what you want. Um, so whether the future is still in anesthetics and intensive care um, hopefully Mm -hmm. but maybe not maybe I might switch but it's okay not to know it is Um, just take every day at a time I guess dope thank you so much for coming on the show today thank you I feel like I've made a new friend (laughs) so (laughs) we're friends mate we are we are so guys the lesson from today African sister African wannabe completely completely so not only should you, yes, slide into DMs, you should also remember that it's okay not to be okay. And the most important thing is just to keep talking um, and sharing your difficulties mm. in life with people who you feel mm. comfortable and able to do that with. Yeah. But just putting yourself as number one is important sometimes, okay? You doctors who wear the S on your chest, 
um, it's important to take that off sometimes. Yeah, no, definitely. So thank you for coming. Thank you. Honestly, it's been such a blessing. And yeah, thank you so much. All right, cool, everyone. Take care. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was recorded at Mare Street Market. Catch us over on www.afterthelettuscom or forward slash after the letters on every social media network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.